Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, we're doing something today that we haven't done for a while. Uh, we are, we're going to, I, I'm completely stumped. Um, I can't even think of something funny to say. Like, what What, what haven't we done for a while? Oh, or is it going to be a, um, uh, what, what did we used to call those things? The happy time at the end. Uh, the 60 seconds of sunshine. No, it's, you're giving no. me the don't say that look. No, we're hitting the road. We're going someplace. All right. Well, we, we <laughs> let's be clear. We don't hit the road. You're hitting the road, but that's exciting. Where are we we're, going? We're headed to Charleston, South Carolina, which is home to a bold proposal to reimagine the schools. We are going to be learning all about it, and Jack will be assisting, standing by to provide some essential historical context. Yeah, that's, that is the role that I love to play. I'll just be standing by. Let me know when you need me. Let me know if I should read about anything before you call. Well, that was actually one of the things about this particular trip that I found so fascinating, that even though I was talking to all these people about something that's happening right now, your old friend history kept rearing its head. <laughs> that's right. I just sit around with my pal all day long. That's uh, I got my elbow patches that you gave me. They're, uh, they're, they've been ironed on and quite useful as I lean on my elbows to read these dusty tomes. Okay, so this episode was inspired, as they often are, by a communique from a listener. Let's meet him. All right. Uh, my name is Henry Snyder, and I'm a school counselor at a Charleston County School District school. Late last year, a bold, some might say an audacious plan to quote-unquote reimagine the schools in Charleston, South Carolina, suddenly surfaced. It came from a prominent local philanthropic organization called the Coastal Community Foundation. And the idea was basically to hand over 23 predominantly black schools in Charleston to a yet-to-be-determined private management entity. The magnet program where Henry works is part of one of the schools that was slated to be reimagined, so he went looking for some help making sense of what was being proposed, which led him where else? I was trying to think of people to reach out to, and I recently listened to an episode and couldn't think of anyone else with kind of the, I would say, the familiarity with the larger issue and possibly some recommendations for other people who'd on the ground uh, dealing with similar versions of, of the same thing. Well, great news. Henry came to the right place. Jack, as you know, is deeply knowledgeable about all things education history related, while I am, some would say, obsessed with the school reform battles playing out in cities across the country. But first, we need to know a little more about the proposal known as Reimagine Schools. Joy Brown is a Charleston native with four kids, two grown, two in school here. She is, to put it mildly, very involved. She's the president of the PTA at her kids' school, 
Vice President of Advocacy for the South Carolina PTA. This is a partial list, by the way. Joy says that while she's seen similar proposals in the past, the reimagined schools plan seemed to come out of nowhere. There's a few of us who follow all the board meetings. I go to every single board meeting. I sometimes, you know, even bore through those audit and finance meetings. Like, <laughs> um, I try to stay as involved as I can. December 10th, I get a text from Frank actually. It was like, have you seen this? Didn't know what he was talking about. I checked the agenda. Usually the agendas come out on a Wednesday, maybe a Thursday. So this is a Friday. The agenda comes out and it's got this reimagined proposal by Darren Goss. And we had not heard a single peep about it. And I am at every meeting. I go to ad hoc meetings, not even a whisper of this going on. So we read the proposal and it is just red flags. It's so vague, yet they're specific in certain odd choices that they made and then super vague on all the important issues, you know. The first thing you need to know about the plan to reimagine Charleston schools that was put forward by the Coastal Community Foundation and its chief, Darren Goss, is that it's complicated. Here are the basics. The plan calls on the school district to set aside $32 million to cover the costs of establishing three community commissions. They will then guide the process of turning around 21 struggling schools. Okay, now in theory, the members of these commissions can recommend whatever kinds of initiatives they think will benefit kids in these schools. But, and here's where things get tricky, the proposal seems particularly enamored of South Carolina's recently enacted Schools of Innovation Law. I'm just going to quote a bit from the foundation. Structurally, the recently passed public schools of innovation law allows school leaders to apply for waivers to state and local regulations that inhibit creative solutions, end quote. In other words, while schools could in theory be reimagined in all kinds of ways, the proposal seems keenest on one kind of way, spinning off management of the schools from the public to the private. And that is what makes public education advocates like Kendall Dees nervous. Kendall is a postdoctoral fellow in race, freedom, and democratic citizenship at the University of South Carolina. He's the founder of the Quality Education Project, and he says that reimagined schools and the thinking behind it is part of a pattern. I wasn't surprised by it because it's been such a concerted effort over time since I've been involved in public education advocacy to privatize schools, but I am deeply concerned because I see these proposals as mechanisms for profit. Vendors are involved in the proposals, say, for example, reimagine schools proposals, where people can make money off of the plight of children of color in these various school districts. In other words, while this particular proposal popped up in a hurry, there is some history here. And since this is a podcast that can't get away from history, we need to dwell on it for a minute. Paul Bowers covered education for Charleston's newspaper, The Post and Courier, from 2016 to 2019 and has three children in public schools in North Charleston. Paul says that growing up here, he was very aware of the fact that South Carolina schools got a bad rap. I'm from South Carolina originally, born and raised here, lived briefly in Texas, but pretty much I'm a South Carolinian. I went to public schools here all through K-12, went to the University of South Carolina, public university. I got a good education 
I was in a, a fortunate place. I was in one of the better school districts. But from a really early age, you you hear the stigma about South Carolina schools. And you know, anytime there is a ranking of educational performance, we are somewhere in the 48th to 50th range nationwide. So I always knew that. I always absorbed kind of the knowledge that there is something deficient here. And there are ways that people absorb that sometimes and think, well, it's it's a fault of our own. We are somehow lazy or our teachers are not as good or something is wrong with us. As an adult, Paul started learning about the history of this state and he discovered something that astonished him and will probably astonish you too. Free public education for all students really took root in the South in South Carolina. And it was through the liberative acts of the the radical Black Republicans in the state who during Reconstruction adopted a new constitution. Uh, They held a constitutional convention. One of the more radical ideas at the time was a free liberal education for all. And that included Black and white students for the first time. That was the standard. And they pursued it. And from the start, it was it was separate and unequal. You know, the, the schools were segregated right at the start, but there was a brief window where that was the standard. Alas, it didn't last. Reconstruction ended. The Southern Democrats at the time, the white supremacist party, retook power and rewrote the Constitution in 1895. This was done under a, a man named Pitchfork Ben Tillman an infamous lynch mob leader. He assassinated Black state lawmakers, and he helped rewrite our Constitution in 1895. That Constitution became the bedrock for Jim Crow laws in this state. Eventually, through a series of Supreme Court decisions, it established this standard of education here, which, according to a a state Supreme Court decision, the standard is minimally adequate. The state must provide a minimally adequate education which is such a precipitous fall from what the Reconstruction Constitution said. That's the standard we set here. And it's, a, it's an awfully low bar. And we sometimes struggle even to meet that bar. Fast forward to the present, and South Carolina's lack of commitment to its schools shows up in the form of a minimally adequate education for too many kids. A lot of it comes down to segregation and resistance to integration and resegregation. There was massive resistance here as in other states when schools were integrated. And there has since been a resegregation and a return to a form of separate but equal. We have in the state now a handful of very high performing public schools. And we have schools that are physically, literally crumbling. We have schools where over a third of the staff comes from folks who are brought in on short-term visas because we don't pay enough to attract people and keep them in these jobs. I think a lot of it comes down to segregation and a lot of it comes down to a labor issue where we do not treat our teachers with respect. There are no teachers unions with bargaining power here. And so the teachers are told to take it or leave it. And increasingly, they are just leaving it. 
Back to that reimagined schools proposal. Now, in many ways, the topic of this episode is a very local story. You're going to be hearing a lot about individuals and organizations that probably aren't familiar, but step back from the specifics just a bit, and the battle playing out over the future of public education in Charleston involves some very familiar questions. Can you quote-unquote fix the schools without doing anything about poverty and segregation, and whose voice should matter when it comes to deciding what happens? happens to schools. I'm AJ Davis. I am, I like to say, a self-appointed education advocate here. I actually work for Charleston County School District at the historic Burke High School with 122 years of history in the predominantly African-American community. I founded an organization called Low Country Black Parents Association because the voices of Black parents specifically, but marginalized parents, has been left out of most, if not all, of the education reform conversations. As we heard from Paul Bauer, South Carolina is home to a handful of public schools that routinely top the best of lists. If you're a regular listener, I'll let you fill in for yourself what Jack has to say about these lists. Charleston's Academic Magnet High School is one of them, but there's a piece of the school story that rarely gets told. What's not said and spoken about that high school is that it originated on the campus of Burke High School and was actually a program started to encourage more attendance to Burke back in the late 80s, early 90s. And that's kind of cold for saying, trying to get white parents to send their kids to a predominantly Black school. But needless to say, once it was determined that the school would be the, <laughs> the name on the diploma of certain students, there was suddenly a push to remove the school from Burke's campus to the old naval base and then to give them a brand new building in North Charleston and, and basically erased the entire history of the school as a program started at a predominantly Black high school. So that's just one of many of the stories that I have regarding public education here. AJ does have a lot of stories. In fact, I'm hoping that we can convince him to star in a future episode. As an advocate inside and outside of schools, he's been on the front lines of the fight over public education in Charleston. So when a new coalition suddenly emerged here in 2018, armed with vague slogans about student achievement and putting kids first, AJ was, well, suspicious. In 2018, we saw the emergence of this organization called the Charleston Coalition for Kids. They just burst on the scene, flush with cash, flush with endorsements from very prominent members of the community, black and white, from across the political ideological spectrum. The reason why this group is significant is because they ran a slate of candidates in the 2018 election, three incumbents and one newcomer who nobody heard of. This group was able to curry favor with some of the more prominent Charleston leaders, individuals like former 40-year mayor Joe Riley, state representative Wendell Gilliard, and a host of others. There were people before this moment, no one really knew anything about this group, didn't know where they came from, didn't even really know what they stood for. And here they were basically making all of these claims that they knew the type of board members that were needed for the district they would elect. And so for me, that was automatically a red flag. All four of the candidates endorsed by the Charleston Coalition for Kids were elected to the school board, by the way, clearing the way to, as the local paper put it, 
overhaul the future of education in the district. Now, if you're in a city where seemingly everybody who is anybody is allied behind, say, expanding charter schools, then this all feels very familiar to you. The out-of-nowhere coalition, the deep-pocketed advocacy group, the dizzying array of reform organizations with overlapping staff and boards. Well, To AJ, it looked a lot like collusion. Suddenly, all of the key players in town seemed to be speaking with one voice. That's why they were so successful initially, because by the time many of us figured out what was going on, we saw all of these people we knew. And of course, we're like, no, you know, they're, 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 you know, with us. And then sitting back and analyzing it, I'm like, no, they knew how to target from an internal standpoint, people who have a following, people who have the ear of the community, they have a car salesman pitch that they will give because who doesn't want to see education improve? Who doesn't want to see lower income students succeed? They give you this, we're here, doesn't matter the zip code that a child is in, they should be able to learn, which is a Republican conservative talking point attached to vouchers, attached to dismantling public education. And it disarms so many people when you put a black face or a brown face in place. So for people who may listen to this and may be wondering how they can fight, you're going to have to be willing to acknowledge that sometimes the weapons that will be used against you will look just like you. Kendall Dees, who heads up the Quality Education Project, says that with so much money and power amassed behind the push to privatize schools here, it can be easy to get the impression that that's what everybody wants. We have many people in power who have written off the public education system and are inclined to want to embrace models of privatization, I think motivated by profit, and I will say it, and that is very concerning to me. One of the challenges, and I'll say this as well, is that those of us who believe in public education, who've been working at ground zero as advocates for public education, we oftentimes don't have the political cachet and the connections to make appearances before, say, for example, the South Carolina Education Subcommittee to argue on behalf of models that could potentially work, pure traditional public education models that could work. Our privatizers, competitors, have connections. They go before the state education subcommittee. I've had experiences where my organization, the Quality Education Project, was denied the opportunity to make those arguments on behalf of public education. So it really is a David and Goliath situation here in the state when it comes to those of us who are fighting for public education versus those who believe in privatization. And so the answer I have is that it really is a situation where we have to educate the public and have them exercise their voice. So, Jack, as we were hearing our guests from South Carolina talk, I just kept thinking about the persistence of this idea through the decades that somehow the key to raising student achievement, giving kids a better life, closing all kinds of gaps— is to change the management structure of schools. And I just wondered if you could explain to us, like, where does that idea come from? And what do you think accounts for just the persistence of belief that this is the thing we need to do? Well, if we want to locate it historically, 
uh, we can go back to the late 19th, early 20th century when school reformers were working to use the district as the mechanism for improving schools. So uh, David Tyack, an educational historian, uh, wrote compellingly about this in his book, The One Best System. And the idea there was that these progressive reformers, and don't think, you know, pedagogical progressivism of the sort that John Dewey advocated for, right? These are uh, what Tyack coined administrative progressives, right? And this is the part of the progressive era that spun off all sorts of new kinds of scientific systems and processes. And so this was scientific management of the schools. And the idea was that uh, through scientific management, we could get rid of some of the backwards cultural practices employed by schools and teachers, the backwards curriculum that was a result of local control, parents sending you know, their own books to school with their kids, teachers teaching whatever they had been exposed to as students. And you know, there's some truth in this, right? There's some truth to the idea that um, there was lots of room for progress in a system that was still pretty young and that in many ways was uh, equivalent to a ship being built while being sailed. Nevertheless, this idea that centralized management uh, through, you know, a, a quote unquote scientific process uh, run by elites, all of whom were white men, um, that that was going to improve the schools was obviously misguided. And people who want to read a lot more about that should read The One Best System. Um, what's really interesting is how that same kind of ethos carries forward. It's just that the unit at which uh, that kind of thinking is pervasive changes. So it stops being the district. And in the 1970s and 80s, it becomes the school, right? So don't think of it as uh, the one best system. Think of it as like the one best school uh, system. And so the thinking there was that there is such a thing as a quote unquote good school, or you could capitalize it as good school. Uh, and Will you do it, that voice again? Yeah, yeah, good school. And um, you know, there, were, there were also those who uh, used different phrases. Um, the effective schools movement was another way of talking about it. Um, and again, the idea was, you know, that kind of management consulting ideas uh, could bring this all together. So find the good schools, the good schools, and then work backwards to figure out, well, you know, what are the elements here? And then let's just reproduce that at scale. Um, so I actually was emailing with friend of the show, David Menefi-Leiby, uh, and his point was that um, any school that wasn't good was then therefore clearly being run by people who didn't get it or who were selfish bad actors, right? That that, that is the logical conclusion. And therefore, therefore, you've got to take the school away from them. You've got to force them out. And this is where you get this idea in the 80s of mayoral control, right? Let's centralize power with somebody who's then going to be able to toss out these bad actors and install good eggs in their places. Um, and eventually that logic gets adopted as a part of NCLB, right? Where there are these mandatory benchmarks that schools need to be hitting. If they don't, 
eventually those schools get slotted for takeover, right? The first takeovers were in the 1980s in New Jersey. Uh, we see it in other places in the 90s, but in the 2000s as a result of NCLB and this logic of, you know, there being a kind of effective school model um, becomes adopted at the federal level in terms of that federal law. And then every state has to act in accordance with that. That changed uh, under ESSA in 2015, but the logic in many ways never went away. Wow, Jack, can I just say you're on fire today? I came prepared. Now back to Charleston. As I was working on this podcast, I learned that the school board has tabled the reimagined schools proposal for now due to the strong pushback from the parents and advocates you've been meeting in this episode. Joy Brown, the parent activist we met earlier, says that the opposition to the plan spanned the political spectrum and inspired groups that are usually silent to speak out. Through all of this, we're going through a pandemic. We have teachers that are at their wits end. They are so tired. They are exhausted. They were speaking out, which in Charleston County is unheard of. Teachers do not speak out for fear of retribution. The principals, Darren Goss didn't even have the consideration to contact the principals, the principals of the affected schools. He didn't talk to them until after the outcry from the public. This is resounding. We have never seen anything like this, where across the board, nobody wants this proposal. This proposal has been rejected from Moms for Liberty all the way across the spectrum. Moms for Liberty, by the way, opposed reimagined schools because of transparency concerns. It got me thinking about just how much more complicated the landscape has gotten for this particular vision of education reform. A decade ago, school takeovers in the name of efficiency and achievement were supported by both parties, and charter schools were the cause of Democratic Party donors and elites. Fast forward to the present, and local activist Mika Gadsen says that she and other public school advocates have learned a lot. Ten years ago, I don't think we had that lens, but I think now we have access to more information than ever. And so for me, when I saw the Reimagined Schools plan and saw the principal players, it was a no-brainer. Now, 10 years ago, maybe not, but um, I'm also a, a twin sister of my brothers in Chicago. So he's, he, he and his wife, who is a public school educator, they years ago put me on and, and helped me see how, how the game is played in, in the Chicago metro area. And also being curious really is helpful. Like just be curious about how your government works, how your school board works, I think is important. And you'll, you'll be able to look at certain conflicts as soon as they emerge, like we saw within the Reimagined Schools plan and proposal. Mika also has a podcast that you should check out. It's called Miked Up with Mika. She says that in this time of racial reckoning and rising inequality, the sales pitch for school privatization rings a little hollow, no matter how much Southern charm it comes wrapped in. It's no, it's no secret that Charleston refuses. I, I, I will not say struggles with its past. No, no, it refuses to confront its past, right? It's, look, all these people come here. We're one of the most popular tourist cities. We, we buy out all these advertorials in Condé Nast and we purchase this yearly award that we tout, which is the, the most, you know, the best city in the world. All of that disguises what's really going on and what's, what's happening here in Charleston. And race plays a big part of it. And identity plays a big part of, of how we, we navigate these spaces. Charleston is a beautiful city. It's a historic city. And AJ pointed to some of that history. But part of this Southern charm 
is this politeness, this patina of politeness, I call it. It coats a lot of the disastrous policymaking. It coats a lot of the disruptive legislation ordinances. So people think a lot of things that are hazardous are presented as palatable. And so people have this impression that Charleston's just this very pleasant, polite, and you know, easygoing city. But peel back the layers and start asking more questions. You start seeing some of the um, the money and the influence behind a lot of this education policy. The case for removing schools from Democratic oversight has also gotten tougher to make. Frank Baylot, who has two kids in Charleston Public Schools, says that a pledge by the head of the Coastal Community Foundation to sustain reimagined schools via private philanthropy alarmed him. Darren Goss said that he was going to sustain the model through philanthropy in perpetuity which really meant he's going to relieve the burden of taxpayers to create a public school system and put it all on philanthropists. And that scares the heck out of me, really does. Because what if Ben Navarro decides he doesn't want anybody to play basketball anymore? What if he decides he wants to erase Robert Smalls from the history book? I mean, we have no control, no way to push back on that. And that just scared me to death. Ben Navarro, by the way, is the founder of a highly regarded charter school network in Charleston called Meeting Street Schools. He's also the CEO of a credit card debt collection company that, according to the Wall Street Journal, stepped up its efforts to squeeze cash from people behind on their credit card bills during the pandemic, even as other companies backed off. Just putting that out there. Now, if you were paying attention to our little history lesson from my co-host about the enduring appeal of school takeovers and makeovers, efficiency is often code for spending less. And that's exactly what's been happening in South Carolina. The state has been spending less on its schools. Journalist Paul Bowers says that it's hard to make the case for reimagining the schools without acknowledging that state leaders have also been actively defunding them. South Carolina has been steadily defunding its public schools, K-12 and higher education. Under the minimally adequate standard, we have a set amount adjusted for inflation each year that we are supposed to be allocating at the state level to school districts per student. We've been underfunding that since 2008. Basically, they, they fiddled with a lot of our taxes. We have unbelievably low property tax rates for homeowners. And as a result, we don't meet our own minimal obligations for funding schools. Underneath all that tinkering and underneath you know, the, the periodic culture wars that we have about schools here, our state legislature and a series of governors, including Nikki Haley, Mark Sanford, and now Henry McMaster, have been defunding the schools. You know, people talk about defunding the police, but We've been defunding the schools and not spending on, on, on anything else. You know, it's just giving money back to the wealthiest few. That is the sabotage underneath it all. Until we fix that, all this tinkering, all the attempts to change governance aren't really going to do a lot of good. When Paul was a reporter at the Post and Courier, he worked on an acclaimed series called Minimally Adequate about the state of South Carolina's public schools. It won awards. It was hugely influential. The Coastal Community Foundation cites Minimally Adequate in its push for what it calls innovative schools, holding up Indianapolis as an example. One out of four students in Indianapolis now attend these schools. They're basically a cross between a traditional district school and a charter school. When the Coastal Community Foundation came up with its reimagined schools plan, the idea was imported from Indiana. 
But here's the thing. South Carolina already follows the Indiana model. Defunding schools in order to keep taxes low, well, that's what Indiana did too. And just last year, a prominent economist made the case that Indiana was imperiling its economy by failing to educate kids and young adults, and that as educational attainment drops, the state has no choice but to offer ever larger incentives to lure employers. He called it the Mississippi strategy, but Kendall Dees says that it's also the South Carolina strategy. We have some $423 million in South Carolina that are, that's lost and not allocated towards education because our state has such generous tax abatements for companies to attract them to move into the state to set up shop and create industry here. It's an economic development strategy. That's something that's of concern to me because that's a lot of money, $423 million. I can think of a lot of good that could do to improve South Carolina's education system. We rank 48th in the country in education. We've always struggled with our rankings in terms of education. We've always struggled with providing a quality education for children across race lines in the state. I feel that we need changes in laws so that we don't have a waste of money that way. We have abatements. I can understand the strategy to bring industry in, but why should those tax abatements last so long? We need to have a change in laws so that that it does not take place. So what happens now? The proposal to reimagine Charleston schools may be off the table, at least temporarily, but the question of how to make schools do better by the kids who need the most is very much unresolved. Kendall says that he hopes that the fierce community pushback will spur a conversation about investment and create some space to consider models other than privatization. We don't invest adequately in public education in South Carolina. And so I feel that we have these mechanisms of privatization to come into place to try to reform schools. But I think the answer is providing funding for public education, providing funding and using the funding strategically and efficiently, which I think is very critical. In these privatization models that are put forth where you have advantages like wraparound services for students, wraparound services for students and their families. You have allocation for additional resources for psychological support to teachers to a classroom. This can be achieved in our traditional public education system. We just need to allocate the money for it. And so what we need to do is use money and funding efficiently and strategically, and that will be an example of how to do it and improve our education system without having to embark upon privatization models. Way back at the beginning of this episode, we met school counselor Henry Snyder, whose concerns about the reimagined schools proposal inspired our podcast journey. Well, while I've been hard at work putting this episode together, Henry has been doing his own research, as they say, so I'm giving him the last word. Henry, take it away. Most people, once they find out about stuff like this, are uncomfortable with it. I think at first blush, a lot of people kind of shrug and say, well, what's wrong with innovation? What's wrong with, you know, harnessing the power of public-private partnerships? You know, insert buzzword here. I think once when people find out what's actually kind of behind the curtain and what it actually involves, it, it looks a lot less creative and innovative than it actually is. And it really does feel like bait and switch might be going too far, but it seems an awful lot like they know that what they want to do wouldn't be popular and wouldn't have support. So because they have resources and they're sophisticated people, they dress it up like something that they think will be more palatable to people. And then once they get the permission, 
then they have the ability to kind of push in. They're proposing that they're going to go in and organically figure out what the best path for each of the schools is. But where this has happened elsewhere, even though keeping the school basically running as is with maybe some tweaks and changes is theoretically an option, it somehow ends up being an option that is almost never the option that they go with. And somehow, despite the fact that they ha- they're open to whatever's best for the school community, what usually happens is as much control as state law allows gets handed over to some sort of management company or public-private partnership or some other version of privatization. A huge thanks to everyone in Charleston, South Carolina, who participated in the making of this episode. Henry Snyder, Paul Bowers, Kendall Dees, Frank Baylot, A.J. Davis, Tamika Gadsden, and Joy Brown. That's a lot of people. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about why zombie ideas hold such sway in education. And we'll be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Weed segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. An influential think tank says it's time for school choice advocates to go all in on the culture war. If this interests you, just go to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast to become a supporter. So, Jack, as I was talking to all of those amazing folks in Charleston, South Carolina, and they were really helping me understand the Reimagine Schools project and where it came from, you know, the word that just kept coming to mind again and again was zombie. Yeah. <laughs> and you know yeah. what I'm referring to, right? Yeah, policies that rise from the dead that, that, that you can't kill. They just keep coming back over and over and over again. And I have to say that I have been somewhat surprised by the sort of speed and insistence with which a number of zombie proposals are popping up in the kind of post-pandemic era. And of course, we're not done, right? But that you, like, it it all, you know, it all feels so tired, right? It's with, with very little research. Somebody in Charleston can t- contact somebody in Indianapolis or New Orleans or St. Louis and find out, you know, this thing that's being touted as the, the great hope, well, we already did it and we have two public schools left, right? <laughs> like, like, it's not like we're 10 years ago where, you know, the, the argument was that, well, we have to try something. Now, they're barely even disguising the fact that the thing has been tried and has disappointed in so many other places. And so to me, that feels like almost like there's another kind of zombie that doesn't even man it, doesn't even really bother to hide the fact that it's a zombie. Or doesn't know that it's a zombie, right? Uh, so I think that what we're dealing with here is a belief system. And that if you understand it as a belief system that is fostered by many of the things that foster, let's say, religious belief or scientific belief. So a community of like-minded people who think in the same way, right, who share the same assumptions, who are uh, operating uh, with the same kind of education, who have been trained in the same way, who often go and visit the same schools. What we can see here is something that I tried to document in my first book long ago, a book called Excellence for All, where what I noticed was that common sense, as it was understood by policy elites, 
was what really was guiding policy, right? They could talk all day long about what research quote unquote says and quote unquote best practices, right? There were lots of ways of talking about how they were making their decisions. But at the end of the day, policy efforts like the small schools movement, right, funded by the Gates Foundation, as well as by the federal government to the tune of um, somewhere between half a billion and a billion dollars, and much more than that spent by the Gates Foundation. At the end of the day, it came down to Bill Gates went to a small school and felt like that was a critical variable. Tom Vander Ark, his chief education person, um, also went to a small school, as did his wife, and they felt like there was something sort of magical there. Now, never mind that there was a small schools movement. Researchers had been studying it for several decades, turned out to be pretty complicated in terms of why smallness could matter and what kinds of other elements of a school needed to be accompanied um, by smallness in order for smallness to have the kind of impact you would want it to, right? It was about gut feelings. It was about instincts. And it was about sharing the same kinds of anecdotes repeatedly, visiting the same kinds of schools, reading the same subset of research. And I think that that's what we're talking about here when we talk about the persistence of the belief that uh, management is at the root of our problems in schools, right? Sometimes it is. There are schools that have bad principles, and that really matters. There are absolutely schools that have toxic cultures resulting from the adults in the building and the extent to which they've been allowed to run amok and uh, create kinds of bad policies and practices, it happens, right? We've got 99,000 public schools in this country, right? Some of them are run by bad adults who are bad at managing things and somebody needs to step in and take over. But the idea that that would then be generalizable to all schools that are struggling with whatever it may be, right? Like lots of poor kids showing up to school and then not achieving at the same rate as their you know, affluent counterparts, right? That in many cases could be attributable to a thousand other things that have nothing to do with bad management and the logic there that um, changing the management of all of these schools that are quote unquote low performing is somehow going to lead to high performance is again, I think, reflective really of a belief system rather than of you know real engagement with evidence and dialogue with people who perhaps bring a different set of assumptions. And of course, it also brings us to what Larry Cuban sort of described as the education historian's dilemma, right? <laughs> that that nobody ever remembers anything. Like it's yeah. always <laughs> it's always all brand new. And, and so we are always relevant except that people still don't care, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jack, you've actually set us up nicely for my Patreon pitch. Oh, great. Exactly what I wanted to do. <laughs> Our regular listeners know that we rely on you to help us keep the podcast going. If you go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast, you can join their ranks. You'll see a list of the cool extras you can get just by sending a couple dollars our way each month. And one of the things that we do is that Jack and I head in the weeds. That's an area where we hold forth on some topic that's a 
profound interest, particularly to me. And today, we're going to be talking about a brand new report from the Heritage Foundation about how school choice advocates need to go all in on the culture war. And boy, was that an eye-opening document. (laughs) Well, I'm excited to talk about that. But first, let me note uh, to our regular listeners, as well as those who are not our regular listeners, that there are all sorts of ways to support the show. Uh, So go on, give us a rating wherever you're listening. That does help people find us. Believe it or not, if you search Have You Heard on places like iTunes, there are like lots of podcasts called Have You Heard. We should at least be the very first one that shows up. Um, So give us a rating. Make sure that you're a subscriber so that the latest episode just uh, uploads or downloads, loads somehow into your feed, uh, whatever the direction of the loading. Um, And, uh, you know, just share uh, an episode with a friend or a colleague who you think might enjoy it and who isn't already a part of our community. Our Twitter handle is at Have You Heard Pod. Our website is Have You Heard Podcast.com. And I think I think that's it. I think that's that's my bit. And nothing makes Jack Schneider happier than when somebody sends a really long email just talking about how much they enjoy the show, referencing history. So keep those coming <laughs> as well. <laughs> that's right. And then and then Jennifer inevitably makes some smarky comment, like, I guess this one's for you. So don't forget to also appreciate all of the wisdom and insight that she brings to the show as well. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. <laughs>